0: And should America be described, you know, as, as essentially about this great new style of democracy and the greatest generation that won World War II and these sorts of things, or should it? Is it is it really about the society that was built on slavery and the redlining and discrimination at every stage and every generation that that, um, that you just mentioned? And of course, it's both, but it's complicated, right? right?
1: That was Keith Payne, and you're listening to USA TBD, a podcast exploring critical issues facing America today, of which there are many. Social justice causes, systemic racial oppression chief among them, an outdated, visionless, and unsustainable foreign policy, a broken food system in which we are literally eating ourselves to death, and a political system so dysfunctional it feels almost beyond reform. All of this unfolding within a world of accelerating exponential technological change and in a country that doesn't really know itself, where myths and half-truths still define the narratives we believe in and live by. So who are we really, deep down? And how do we get here? What's actually happening today, right now? And where do we go from here, together, as a nation and a people, in a future that is very much to be determined? I'm your host, Dave Bernat. My guest today is Keith Payne. Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and an international leader in the psychology of inequality and discrimination. His fascinating 2017 book, The Broken Ladder, How Inequality Affects the Way We Think, Live, and Die, explores the ways in which inequality negatively impacts the health and wellness of people at all levels of society. He joined me from his office on the campus of UNC. Keith, thanks for uh, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Great to have you here.
0: Well, thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you.
1: Uh, so, for our listeners, uh, you know, I just it'd be great if you could just kind of top line, just kind of walk through sort of the, the broken ladder, of your book, and kind of the the sort of major thesis. I know for me, you know, the big aha was like, you know, post Piketty, you know, we know post one percent, post occupy Wall Street. We all had this sense of inequality. But then you're like, yeah, it's a little more complicated than that. Can you just kind of, kind of, give us the uh, the so overview of uh, of what your book sort of explores?
0: Right. So we've heard a lot, if you follow the news at all, um, in the last several years, about the high and increasing levels of income inequality, both in the United States and in lots of countries around the world. And uh, I think people uh, don't always know what to make of it. We've heard um, from Piketty that in- income inequality is increasing. We've heard from lots of news sources um, that there are economic causes and consequences of it. But other than a-, a vague sense of, well, that doesn't seem terribly fair, I think most people don't, have a, uh, d- don't know what to think about it necessarily. And so when we talk about inequality, um, most people's mind goes straight to poverty, And, of course, poverty is a problem, but it's not the same thing as inequality because inequality is about the size of the gap between the wealthiest and the poorest. And, in fact, it's driven mostly by the extreme wealth of the wealthy. So is that something we should care about? That's the question um, my book addresses, and not from an economic perspective, but from a psychology and health and behavior perspective. What does it mean for an individual – be living in a society with extreme levels of wealth inequality Uh, what does it do to us not as an economy but as people
1: right and can you just sort of talk about you know some of the because i know for me some of the charts early in the book that kind of show the relative countries and their relative levels of wealth and and the the assumption i think without thinking about it is well poorer countries have it a little bit rougher and richer countries have it better but it turns out not to be the case. It's actually the levels of inequality that are the differentiator between some of the metrics of uh, welfare, right?
0: That's right. So if we look around the world at different countries and how well they're doing on basic outcomes like uh, longevity and mortality rates, infant mortality, the, number of, uh, the amount of violent, violent crime, the number of people in prison, and things like that, um, you know, well of the country does make some difference, especially when we're talking about uh, very poor countries. So, you know, the well-being of a country definitely increases as, as it goes from an extremely poor country up to a, a moderately wealthy country. But after you get to the point where you're looking at countries that are sort of moderate in wealth, countries like China or Brazil um, or Mexico, more money uh, doesn't translate it into better well-being, more happiness, longer lives. And so for those economically developed countries like the United States, like Western Europe, like Japan, the amount of money per person doesn't seem to have much effect in how well the society is working and how happy and how healthy people are. There, the story changes so that it's now the degree of inequality, not the average level of income that's the best predictor of those uh health and well-being outcomes. So there's this seemingly ironic finding that America, the wealthiest of all the countries, actually fares the poorest um on all of these health and social outcomes. And it's because even though we're the wealthiest, we're also by a good measure the most unequal.
1: Right. And and just I remember in the in the chart that we have a couple neighbors that are more in the middle in terms of wealth and on the lower end of wealth. Who 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 else is in the High inequality, poor outcomes neighborhood, and who's even across all the wealth and then the lower levels of countries who's in the in the positive side of the scale
0: Well, we have uh, some neighbors who are um, pretty wealthy but don't do so well, like um, the u k um, and uh, a handful of other uh, countries that that you would think should be doing better, and they again are are right along with us on the high-income inequality side of the scale. And then we have other kinds of um, comparisons. Countries like Italy, Ireland, um, and Greece, that are actually pretty poor countries. Their average income is quite low, but they do phenomenally well um, in terms of health and, and longevity and happiness and those sorts of outcomes. And it corresponds to their very low levels of inequality. I recently um, wrote a blog post arguing that um, if you look across the countries that have uh, diets named after them, the Mediterranean diet, the Nordic diet, the Japanese diet, people look at the, the very long lives in those countries and think it must be something they're eating. But if you look at what actually predicts those long, healthy lives, uh, it, it's not the diet. Um, that's why we have something the French uh, paradox because the diet in uh, the typical diet of, of somebody in France uh, doesn't look that healthy from a nutritionist point of view. it's high in fat and so on. but uh, the low levels of inequality in those countries seems to be a better predictor of long uh, lives uh, as opposed to what people are actually eating.
1: that's uh, that's such a trip. I think also your book and, and maybe you can expound a little bit on as you said, inequality. We think about poorness and poverty, but your book sort of explores the fact that even if you are in the you know the upper middle bracket or area in a, in a rich country, if you have high inequality, those people are are uh, also not suffering be the wrong word, but there are impacts to them that would probably never pop into someone's mind when they're thinking about inequality in a relatively wealthy country.
0: That's right, so uh, one of the things that inequality does is that it it gives us higher and higher comparison standards to compare ourselves to so people generally um, can't help but comparing ourselves to other people, and in particular, we like to compare upward to those who are uh, doing very well as opposed to comparing downward to those who are doing worse. And one of the consequences of that is that if you're somebody with an average level income or even uh, above average income, if you're in a place that has very high inequality so that the, the, the wealthy are extraordinarily wealthy, it makes everybody, including those upper middle class folks, feel poor by comparison, and it makes them feel like they have a higher level of need that they have to meet in order to just be normal.
1: Right. Got it. Um, You know, one of the things that I want to try to do on this podcast is not just explore issues like this and and educate both myself and anybody who's listening uh, and kind of understand from people like you, you know, what is behind these issues or inside them, but also try to pivot that conversation toward what are we going to do about this? And so, you know, you talk a little bit at the end of the book um, about some ideas about ways we could try to uh, improve the situation. I think some of them, I would bucket them into feel more like an individual self-help, mental, gymnastic, you know, like you said, look down, not up kind of thing. But from a broad policy perspective, politically, governmentally, like, you know, what do you think are ways we can tackle this um, as a society? If if we can even at all, really, without radically changing the way we, we operate.
0: Well, I think the first step is to think clearly about the issues uh, in front of us and to be able to separate what's an issue of inequality from what's an issue of poverty. So uh, I think it's it's easy for people to think about um, the notion that it's a good idea to try to alleviate poverty. Um, it's much more difficult for people to wrap their mind around the idea that poverty is only half the equation and we need to actually address inequality itself. Right. So um, once we're thinking about it uh, as, as a, an issue in its own right, it points out some some interesting um, directions. For example, it means that economic growth by itself won't solve the problems that are associated with inequality. So if uh, by some economic miracle everybody's income doubled overnight – uh, the problems of inequality would be made worse, not better, right? Because doubling right. the income of millionaires increases inequality um, compared to doubling the uh, income of relatively poor people. So the gap between the wealthy and the poorest would just grow larger. So uh, economic growth by itself just isn't um, going to address the issues of inequality. We have to think about the distribution itself and, uh, you know, this is one of those areas where I don't think we need startling, clever new policy ideas. I think the ideas have been around for decades. We've known what policies tend to increase inequality and what policies tend to decrease them. And uh, where we are is that we just are too divided as a society to decide to do something about it. But we know, for example, that you, know, you can reduce inequality by raising the minimum wage. You can also reduce inequality um, by making the, the, the tax, uh, tax rates more progressive so that um, higher income people pay a larger share. Um, there are very old ideas um, like the universal basic income that is getting a, a fresh new look from a lot of people these days. And I think that's a very interesting uh, approach, especially as more workers are displaced by technology. Um, and so that's that's one good idea that's been around for a long time and used to have uh, a lot of bipartisan support. And so we will see if that, um, uh, that idea can attract more bipartisan support moving forward. But this is an area where you know, uh, where we've known about these policies for a long time, you know Paul Krugman had an editorial uh, in just in the last day or so um, arguing for what I've been arguing for for a long time, which is that we we don't always need clever new policy ideas um, to address these old problems. Um, there are, when you're talking about budgets, increasing one thing decreases something else, and there are only a handful of ways to to move those numbers around.
1: Right, right. Let's let's talk about UBI as a, a universal basic income, as it as it is often referred to. And, and certainly, I'm the place I'm hearing about the most is from the tech Silicon Valley sphere, if you will. This this idea that we're going to have an age of abundance and uh, an ex- exponential growth in technology that, although it will displace people, it's going to open up a lot of areas for you know less work, more automation, and and the way to, to help alleviate that displacement and disorientation is going to be some form of universal basic income. I guess, and that's, you know, we can debate that one up and down and how viable that would be within the US given our political and cultural history. I guess, Mike, one question I have for you would be to your point about uh, the relative inequality. If tomorrow we've all, you know, probably a lot of us have seen those surveys or the research that shows once you get past 75 grand or 80 grand a year, your increase in happiness doesn't start changing much you know beyond that um so if we got everybody up to let's just make it up 80 grand a year we would take care of a lot of the poverty situations but inequality might not change that much right
0: well uh you know if, if everybody was making 75 or eighty thousand dollars a year i think that would have a, a a big impact on inequality it wouldn't it wouldn't erase it um because the people at the at the top would still be making astronomically more, but I think it would make a huge effect. Um, and something like universal basic income has sort of uh, a, a double effect, which is that it reduces inequality um, while at the same time eliminating poverty. Right. Um, and so those are two separate issues, but UBI takes aim at both of them at the same time. And in order to um, make a basic income work, um, the tax rate would have to become more progressive than it is today, and so higher tax rates at the top would also have the effect of reducing inequality on the high end.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the the initial uh, boost to the to the livelihoods and the the resources available to people, if that were the case, on the lower end would be tremendous, independent of how it impacts the the wealthy. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, you talk about tax rates and. It's almost like we can just put that one to the side because it seems like, we, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the 70s, I mean, obviously the tax rates beyond your first million, what have you, were were incredibly high. And, you know, we also had interest rates that we, none of us can even remember existed in the double digits. So it's, uh, it feels like there's no, there's no going back on the tax side anytime too soon. We're just moving in the opposite direction. But uh, I'm curious, you also talk a lot in the book about the psychological impact on people uh and you and you talk about for example the sort of short-term thinking and it's a, it reminds me a bit of what you're talking about which the two sides to to poverty for example and assumptions people make can you talk a little bit about that the, the way that um the way that the, the brain works and the psychology of how you might be making decisions when you're in that higher stress uh lower income you know ecosystem as a person
0: well one of the things um that all organisms do, including humans, all the way down to, you know, uh, fish and butterflies, is that, um, when resources are scarce, um, we take whatever risk we need to, to attain what we need, right? And when resources are more plentiful, we become risk averse. Um, what's interesting is that, uh, when it comes to humans, um, Our perception of of scarce resources depends not only on literally having enough food on the table, but also on our relative comparisons to how much other people have. So um, if other people around you have a lot, you think that you also should have a lot just in order to meet your needs, and if that's the case... Uh, then people are are willing to take more risks in order to achieve that, whether the risks are things like buying lottery tickets, which is more common in unequal places than in more equal places, uh, things like taking payday loans, which is uh, more common in states with high inequality than states with low inequality, and also other kinds of risk uh, beyond monetary outcomes. Um, so we might look at uh, other people around us posting fabulous vacation pictures and, even in, and feel like, well, I can't afford that fabulous vacation, but there are other ways that I could have a euphoric time. And that kind of risk-taking sets up people for things like uh, drug and alcohol abuse, smoking, and other kinds of um, health risk behaviors. And so um, it's been known for a long time, that these kinds of outcomes, payday loans, lottery tickets, drug and alcohol abuse, smoking, they're all more common uh, among low-income places. But what's new here is that uh, it turns out that those kinds of outcomes are not just predicted by poverty. They're predicted even better um, by high levels of inequality. So if you're in a state, for example, uh, that has higher levels of inequality, people are more likely to engage in those high-risk, high-reward, both financial and and health kind of behaviors. And so even though these are things that we associate with poverty, right, you don't want your kid to go hanging out in a a poor neighborhood maybe because you're worried about the sort of crime and drug use and and risky kinds of behavior that are going on there. But it turns out that uh, we should be worried about our kids coming out in high inequality areas, not just poor, because high inequality mimics the behavioral effects of poverty, even for people who aren't poor.
1: So you mentioned states. So even, we, even obviously, then with here within the United States, we have a range. What are some of the states that are on each end of the spectrum, even within the broader U- U.S. Uh, you know landscape?
0: Yeah. So in the United States, some of the highest inequality states is an interesting. Uh, group of both wealthy states, New York and California, which are among the, the highest inequality, and also poorer states like Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Um, and then middle-income states like Texas and Florida are also high inequality. So that's a, a conglomeration of of states that are incredibly diverse in a lot of ways, but they're similar in having high inequality, and they also have a lot of these bad outcomes that I was mentioning. On the other end of the distribution. We have states that are low in inequality. Some of the lowest inequality states are states like Iowa and uh, Utah, Utah, Utah (laughs) and Iowa, right? So (laughs) these are are places where, uh, you know, largely Midwestern and Western states and really uh, low low rates of of crime and drug use and all of those sorts of things that, that go along with inequality as well.
1: Right. When you look at this issue, we talk about, quote-unquote, what to do about it, you know, broadly as a society politically. Are you hopeful? Because it feels like, to me, at a time when we actually need more expertise, more thoughtfulness, more nuance in our policymaking, God knows, in the the discussions of, which are – which is – you know, it's very poor across the media and – You know, how are you feeling about our chances of being able to to tackle these issues with any kind of uh, fresh um, database, you know, and uh, and, you know, new approaches?
0: You know, in the short term, this is this is tough, right, because we are so divided in the country politically. um, And there's gridlock for all of the any kind of major um, legislation. The. um, Right now, there's sort of we're at a sort of a draw in the sense that you know Obamacare was preserved mostly, and that has the effect of reducing inequality. And yet, um, we had a, a large tax cut recently, which will have the effect of um, increasing inequality. But in the longer term, I am hopeful, and the reason is this: that if you look at the long-term trends in public opinion, in terms of whether people believe that there is a lot of inequality, whether they believe that there's too much inequality, and whether they believe that the government should do something to help people um, reduce inequality, those trends are all moving over the long term uh, in the direction of caring more and wanting to do more about inequality. Uh, and, and research shows that over the long term, public opinion trends tend to become policy. Right. even though in the short term that often doesn't happen. And so I'm hopeful that what we're seeing is a growing awareness at the popular level for an issue that will eventually become so obvious at the policy level that we see a big change, so something very similar to what we saw with same-sex marriage and with the legalization of marijuana. The society moved in a progressive direction long before the policymakers did. And then at some point, you know whether it was legislators, or the Supreme Court, everybody looked around and said, "You know, the society is complete, p- completely moved. Why are we still right where we used to be?" And then there, there are these really rapid changes. I think we're earlier on in um, that kind of sea change on issues of income inequality, but it's going to come from the from the people. It's going to be bottom up from the grassroots. Right, and I guess at some I point, policymakers
1: uh, are going to be left behind. Right, one one difference that pops into mind hearing you say that is obviously the idea of sort of rights and freedoms and social mores and custom versus this sort of you know deeper, uh, heavier duty issue in the sense of actual wealth distribution and card you know cold hard cash uh, feels like a lot uh, of a of a heavier anvil to move, especially. When um, I think as part of what's happening with respect to exponential technology and the nature of capital itself, it feels like in the intervening every month, right, the gap gets bigger. Um, And uh, it's one thing for us to say, hey, like you said, society is actually okay with gay marriage, so we should just get out of the way versus the society really,
0: really, really
1: thinks there should be less inequality okay, we can't just say we agree, we'll get out of the way. Get out of the way of what, you know? So it feels like it's a it's a much more complicated, heavier-duty uh, issue. And, uh, you know, whereas I, as I say, as a, say if someone opposed to gay marriage might bemoan the fact that the, that the, that the social mores have changed, you know, no one's saying, in order to do this, we have to take something away from you. Uh, it might offend you, you know, on a moral or a religious level, but there's no, there's no sacrifice. Whereas in this case... You have to collectively say, hey, going forward, you know, you guys are going to have to give up some of the pie that you keep collecting uh, in some form. Right.
0: Yeah, I agree with you in the sense that um, there's because we're talking about um, winners and losers. And in this case the losers um, would be very wealthy and powerful people, right? There's going to be a lot of stiff opposition to it. Um, There's another sense in which, though, I don't think it's that different from those other issues because I do think that people who opposed um, same-sex marriage or uh, marijuana or other kinds of cultural issues on moral grounds, I think they do feel like they're giving up something. True. And they're losing part of the pie to feed that to somebody else.
1: Yep. That's a good point.
0: just subjectively i think that is actually more parallel
1: right no it's true in a sense of a loss of of a of a prior you know system or a wider sense of shared values i get that right um, it's just uh you know you might feel under siege as a, as a conservative person given all these moors, but um it's it's kind of like it's almost like the gun thing you know i hope i hope that you know if we do this podcast in a couple years you're making the same speech saying, and then all of a sudden, you know, we finally saw the light on gun reasonable gun control. Um, and I'm hopeful, obviously, we can move the ball forward in a big way. And yet you're like, oh, yeah, we still have millions and millions and millions of guns out there.
0: Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's, it's a, an issue that might be in the earlier stages of going undergoing a similar dynamic. But, yeah, I, I think I think you're right. We'll just have to wait and see because it's going to be telling the next couple of years.
1: Right. Um, so your book's been out for a couple of years. What's What's next? Are you working on anything new? A new A new angle? A new offshoot of this this area?
0: Well, um, I'm I'm looking at a couple of different um, topics um, that I'm writing about more broadly right now. One is is um, racial inequality and how it how implicit bias uh, both follows from economic inequality and feeds back into it and and uh, we're trying to come to a deeper understanding of what implicit bias really is. And the other direction I'm, I'm looking at um, diving into more deeply is understanding the nature of, of political polarization and um, what's going on in our country. I think it's, everybody knows that it's happening um, and, uh, and they can feel it, but I, I think we sort of misdiagnose... Uh, some of the, the root causes of it and um, similar to the theme we were just talking about that I, I I think that the country is moving in a progressive direction in a lot of ways we have this interesting dynamic going on with political polarization so uh, on lots of issues the, the country has been moving in a, a liberal direction for decades and con- conservatives are aware that liberals are winning but liberals are not Right. So so conservatives feel like the world is changing around them and, and, and slipping away from them. And I think on on most major uh, social and cultural issues and some economic ones, they're absolutely right. Whereas liberals don't feel like they're winning, although if you look at the data, they consistently are. And the reason is that liberals look forward to a, a an ideal future. And, and by comparison to that, the present always feels terrible. Right, and there's still injustice, right? Right, and conservatives look backward to a, an idealized past that you know w- was probably good for for their demographic, but uh, very unequal, very hierarchical, very homogenous. Um, and by comparison to uh, the standards they used to enjoy, things feel terrible today. So right. both sides feel terrible for opposite reasons, and I think that. It's conservatives who actually have the, the correct insight um, that liberals are winning and that is what you know what they mean when they say um, the morality of the country is is going to hell right which is that it's becoming more progressive right
1: um, yeah the race thing I mean you know this last you know couple of years what what a sort of you know kind of whiplash for some broader sense of the, of the public's ideas about the euphoria of the Obama presidency uh, and then uh, the sort of Black Lives Matter period we're in, which, you know, if you're – obviously if you're black, you're like, no shit, America. This has been going on for decades. Um, just no one had a cell phone. And for maybe white America or mainstream America, it's this kind of wake-up call of like, Oh, I thought we were kind of past that and we have so so far to go. Uh so I'm glad that you're turning your attention toward that, you know, broadly how do you see it because obviously, you know, whether it's the, you know, the the identical resumes with the white sounding name and the black sounding name getting you know, different results, there's been lots of studies. You can go online and take tests to see what your biases are. You know, how do you how do you see uh the, the the broader you know where are we in that moment and where where do you see things?
0: Right, I I think we are in this moment of of uh, not reckoning but realization where um you know just a few years ago a survey was done with um showing that white Americans uh, on average felt like um, there was more discrimination against white Americans than against black Americans. Right, um, um and,
1: and unbelievable really when you think about it.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. It's just delusional if you compare it to any set of any set of data. Um, but I think it's because uh, people do feel like it's this zero-sum game. And 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 if you look backward compared to the the amount of privilege that the average white person had uh, t- 30 years ago, um, it's different now. Right. And so that's that's actually good news for the country, right? Uh, and, and for minorities. But it feels like a loss. Uh, for people who are used to being in, in positions of privilege, and I think all of the, uh, the the cell phone pictures and the video cameras from police, uh, the, the dash cams, and the awareness of um, whether it's police shootings or you know the recent Starbucks uh, episode, I think this is um, coming front and center in a way that. Um, it, it hasn't necessarily been in the past, but uh, you know, again, it's 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 polarizing people's reactions. I think there's going to be um, a, a large, diverse, and young majority of people who say, "Well, we understand that this has always been happening, and, and we need to talk about it." And there's going to be an increasingly small and shrinking uh, minority of of primarily white, primarily older people who um, think that we're moving in the wrong direction and, and things should just stop. But, you know, that's always been the case. Right. Um, I was just reading a, a, a book about the history of racial integration in the South and, you know, conservative Southerners um, who were at the time partially Democrats, but they're still uh, conservative in the sense that they didn't want society to change. Um, were saying, well, you know, slavery was abolished a hundred years ago and, uh, now that's enough, right? So we shouldn't have to also integrate our schools and 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 um, uh, right
1: other institutions and have civil rights legislation,
0: right? right? So at, at every stage, we have people looking toward the future saying things aren't just yet. We have to keep pushing. We have other people uh, looking back saying, "All right, that last generation of change was enough. Let's draw the line there." Right. But of course, society doesn't stop. It, it, it keeps moving. And what's interesting is that what becomes the moderate position is, is slowly drifting left for both, you know, wh- whatever is in between the, the, the Democrat and the conservative and, and the Republican
1: um, yeah. policy. I mean, Obama was civil unions when he got elected, right? I mean, on the gay right? marriage front. I think on the racial thing, I think what's, it's interesting you mentioned people. Let's just be, be generalizing them as sort of the white, you know, maybe more conservative people. Or people in general feeling a loss of something. Um, and I, I get that on some level. And in many ways, it, it probably has actually nothing to do with race, but with our sort of slow slip from a post-World War II you know, uh, you know, societal high, if you will, economically and relative to the rest of the world. But I see that to me the issue is more the lack of, of recognition of the past and, and, the, and the ignorance which I hate that word. I think it's a polarizing word. Someone says you're ignorant and it's rather than sort of you, you're not aware or you don't know, but whether you're talking about lynchings, whether you're talking about the real extent of Jim Crow, redlining. I mean, you know, I remember finding out a few years ago, like, Oh, FDR cut like, you know, domestic workers and agricultural workers out of the new deal because the Southern Dixiecrats wouldn't pass the bill. And, you know, no one told me that basically black folks kind of got the shaft on, on a lot of chunks of the new deal. No one told me that the GI Bill essentially only was utilized by white soldiers coming home because of the way the banks, you know, were giving loans with literal federal policies, you know, and we've seen in various books, you know, or Ta-Nehisi Coates essays, what have you. So I think that that lack of understanding and awareness about the actual past uh, is to me, you know, if you could if we could actually get everybody a little more, quote unquote, up to date on what's really occurred in the last hundred years it would have a profound effect cuz most people even a lot of black folks they don't even know you know some of these things
0: right and i think um you're you're pointing to a greater appreciation of history is is really important because um you know on, on a couple of different scores one uh, i think one thing that that upsets conservatives who who value the past um is this tendency to to ignore the good parts of the past, right? And and there's debates over what should be in history books, and and should America be described, you know, as, as essentially about this great new style of democracy and the greatest generation that won World War II and these sorts of things, or should it? Is it is it really about the society that was built on slavery and the redlining and discrimination at every stage and every generation that that um, that you just mentioned and of course it's both but it's complicated right right? and so um not to mention the the,
1: indigenous people before that that we kind of you know pushed out wiped out you know marginalized and uh you know there's that whole story too right
0: absolutely but um in terms of today's um prejudice and discrimination going on i really do think we need to to recognize the ties to the past more um we uh, just did a study in which we looked at the average level of implicit racial bias in each county in the Southern states.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we compared that level of, of implicit bias to, um, data from the 1860 census. Okay. And it turns out that counties that had more slaves before the civil war have higher levels of implicit bias today. Wow. Which just blew my mind.
1: Um, that it correlates that closely this, this, you know, after so many years is, uh, broadly I would expect it to be true about the South versus the North or something, but go a county by county.
0: Right. And what, wow. what I think that highlights is that, you know, on a county by county level, um, there, the, the places with, with, more people enslaved also had more racial violence like lynchings after emancipation and erected more barriers and more segregation and more redlining in in the the 20th century too and so there's this unbroken chain of of you know of of barriers because the areas where the economy was most dependent on slavery uh in 1860s um were the places with the most Incentive to try to resist uh, equality uh, at every stage that followed.
1: Right. I would think that there's an angle of this that connects back to this idea of poverty, and uh, and this whole critique around individual responsibility versus sort of environmental factors. And I know in your book you talk about not just the decision making that one might make, you know, operating in, in, a, in a level of high inequality, even just the short termism. Uh, that comes from from being under stress to survive, right? Even, I mean, I would imagine there's probably. I know you said there's more risky behavior in poor neighborhoods in unequal countries, but there's also just more risky behavior among poor populations in general, right? Because I'm not worried about saving for college when I got to make sure I don't get evicted uh, from my apartment. Um, and it's interesting to think about. I would imagine you're you're getting to this too as well. Just the the, the stress. Of being in, in, say, for example, the black population in America where, uh, you know, the small things you're encountering on a daily basis, let alone the big things like trying to get a loan or trying to get a job and the toll that they would take on your health, your mental health, your physical health. Uh, it feels like that's a whole area that that could have an incredible amount of research um, done on it. All
0: right. Um You know. That short-term thinking uh, is often talked about as as irresponsibility or impulsiveness and that sort of thing, but uh, it's it's an entirely rational, adaptive way to respond to situations in in which you you don't have uh, any resources. So, like you said, if you if you have to um, pay rent today, then you know. That money is not going to be saved for retirement. Right. You have to buy food for today. That money is uh, not going to be uh, spent on the utility bill for even for for later in the month. Um, and so, it's it's not um, a, a crazy way to react. Um, I, I think anybody would, when when there's a, an immediate crisis, they shift their attention to the short term. It's just that um, people in high poverty situations and in high inequality situations are perpetually in that short-term mode right um, that's and, where the and UBI
1: I, and the minimum wage raise independent of higher taxes on the wealthy whatever it's like giving people that breathing room to just manage you know those daily affairs without you know having a, a transmission problem on their car cause their life to you know fall apart
0: that's right I remember once when I was in graduate school um, Things were going along pretty well. Um, I had no money, of course. Um, and um, one day, my car got towed. And that just was a disaster for my whole year because it cost $300 to get the car out of impoundment. Right. And if you didn't come up with the money today, it was going to be $325 tomorrow and on and on and on it it would escalate. And so, uh, that sent me scrambling to borrow money from, uh, whoever I could find that had the money (laughs) uh, to get that cash. Right. And, uh, probably I think that what I did is put it on the credit card and that just increased in credit card debt for, for, uh, the rest of that year before I was able to pay that off. And well, so this sort of escalating nature um, of these short-term debts is devastating.
1: And then when you think about, and, and I want to come back to to the Keith Payne of it all as well, a good segue to to your own personal story, but even when you think about something like what was uncovered, the you know the systemic abuse of parking violations and other types of ticketed income, uh, by the say the Ferguson Police Department, and you know, and essentially using the poor as a revenue stream uh, for court fees and, and again parking tickets and all that, uh, people already who are struggling, and then they're the ones getting more parking tickets and more you know other other types of uh, of things being you know used against them by the city. It's just kind of again as that came out, you think, holy moly, what is going on, and what did, what do we even know right about what's happening?
0: Um, right. Even without any sort of bias in the implementation of these policies, um, fees as punishments, whether it's for parking tickets or bail or whatever, um, it creates a poverty trap, right, even if the law was applied um, right. equally. But add on top of that the the disparate targeting of, of the poor, and it's really a no-win situation. Yeah, it's horrible.
1: But, but getting back to you, because uh, you opened the book with an anecdote about sort of sort of an epiphany you had as as a youth going to school and then you talk a little bit later about you know you know how your your life and your family and where you've lived has kind of changed as It relates to folks who stayed back uh, in kentucky where you came from can you just talk a little bit about sort of that that aha moment when you were a kid and uh and the broader issue of of that sort of shift personally as you've, as you've lived through it
0: right so i told the, in the book the story of um this one day, I was standing in the lunch line, in uh, I believe it was the fourth grade, and I get up to the cashier, and we had a, a new lunch lady um, who asked me to pay a dollar twenty-five for lunch, but I didn't ever pay for my lunch right the previous lunch lady had just sort of passed me on by um, and, we, and we just had an unspoken understanding uh, I, I just didn't pay for lunch and I had never thought about it because that's just the way it had been uh, ever since I had begun school but this one day she this new person said you know that'll be a dollar and I had no money um, so I was I, I just froze. And in that moment, um what I realized was all this time, a lot of the other kids had been paying for their lunches, and I hadn't. And it dawned on me for the first time that I was getting free lunches. I'd heard about free lunches as um uh, an aid to the poor, but it had never occurred to me that that was me. So that all of a sudden made me realize that I was one of the poor kids at school. And I'd had a, a, a vague sense of, you know, um, maybe vague inferiority as a kid or anxiety about things. But all of a sudden this crystallized it, that uh, there was this hierarchy uh, in which some of the kids had money and some of us didn't. And what's interesting for me looking back at that is that, you know, I didn't have any less money that day or the day after than, than my family had had before, but my subjective awareness of it all of a sudden made it feel different for me. So I became even more shy and withdrawn. I, I started noticing the differences in the clothing and the accents and the behavior and the confidence of other kids uh, in my school. And so suddenly becoming aware that I was one of the poor kids had these enormous psychological impacts. And what that alerted me to was how powerful our subjective sense of poverty and wealth and where we stand compared to other people, how powerful that subjective sense is over and above what we actually have in the bank account
1: right fascinating i think uh, i so I, I can remember you know I, I was not a kid on free lunch, but I remember the free lunch kids that was a thing right you just knew it like um, there were kids in your school that uh, like you that you know were getting free lunch and that was a it was a, you know, that's just fascinating that, that you didn't even realize it in a way until it kind of got brought to your attention. Um, and then
0: Yeah, but it, it, it snapped it snapped into line like it, a difference that I had always vaguely sensed, right? right? I knew I wasn't one of the well-dressed, confident kids, but all of a sudden now I understood why.
1: You're like, oh, I'm wearing tough skins, and they're wearing Levi's, right? <laughs> right. And I've got on winter twos from Sears, and they've got on, you know, leather Nikes. Leather, not canvas, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, that's fascinating, and then you also talk a little bit about the book about sort of you know um and you mentioned like when people tend to to obviously if you don't have the means to leave a, a high inequality area that even just the simple act of moving to a place with less equality can kind of uptick those metrics in your life and then you talk about of course you move moving on um and not being being staying within the sort of geographic zone you grew up in and how that is such a Different path for you as you, you relate as you relate to your old family and everything.
0: Right, yeah. One of the things I was amazed at as I, I went away to college and then to um, graduate school at an elite private university and um, entering environments with more and more um, middle class people and upper class people and more just wealth and resources around. It was amazing how um, how people. Related to the future and insecurity in a different way. So, you know, when I was in graduate school, I would worry about, you know, I, I would know that I was expected to to go to a conference. It was part of sort of the professional expectations, but I knew it would cost a lot of money. Right. And so I would stress about it for months, and then I would finally mm. talk to, you know, a professor, my advisor, or or somebody and say, you know, here's this problem. I I, I need to go to this conference, and and I don't know. Is, is there any kind of funds I could apply for? to and and they would say, "Oh, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out." Right. And there was it, it was just um, it was just assumed that everything would work out, and it did, right? It, it, you, I, it took me years to get used to this environment where you know what, an opportunity is just going to come around the corner, right? Because I had grown up with people always saying. Um, you know, I'm going to strike it rich. I'm going to hit it big, and then nothing happens. And here's a, an environment in which people go, "Don't worry about it. Don't be, don't, 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 um, don't self-promote yourself too much. Don't, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, don't knock yourself out about it. Um, the resources are just going to be there. Relax. Right. right. Focus on the future. And um, and so that was that was very different for me. And so whenever I would go back home after being in that environment for For a number of years, Um, going back home to Nashville, Kentucky, and and hanging out in that environment, um, you feel a lot of distance, right? And there, there are sort of unshared assumptions, and your, you know, my politics had changed, my religion had changed, and all of these um, things that go along with higher education, uh, which were wonderful for me were also separating me further and further from the family that I left behind there.
1: Right, right. I mean, getting back to your long-term optimism and your short-term, I suppose, you know, less optimistic or pessimistic, uh, and I think about, uh, again, these exponential factors underlying wealth creation and the way that the world is changing, or a book like Coming Apart, Charles Murray, obviously a controversial figure, but I thought the book was pretty illuminating. When you look at the trends, you know, and then Piketty and what have you. Um, is there a part of you that, you know, in the, in the, in the column of keeps one up at night or, you know, uh, it's easy to say, well, things might have to get a little bit worse before they get better. But is there, are there scenarios there? Or do you look at the trends and say, okay, they might get a little bit worse and then hopefully it'll turn. But you know, what are, what are the nightmare scenarios? What are the, you know, again, to be the contrarian saying, you know, that all sounds great on gay marriage, but, this economic divide shows no signs of slowing down. It may even get worse faster. You know, when you look at it from a negative or a, or a, or a keeps you up at night point of view, you know, what, what do you say to that?
0: Right. So there are two sort of nightmare scenarios for me. And one is is a, the very qu- a quiet nightmare in which you just nothing changes. We just keep drifting in the same direction we're going. Right. Right. So uh, inequality gets worse. The wealthy uh, – get even more so, um, the poor feel, uh, get left behind further and further. And, um, I I think that's unsustainable, right? And so if, if we're just further along the same line 20 years from now, um, I think that's one nightmare scenario because it's not going to stay that quiet for long. I think eventually, um, uh, there's going to be social unrest about that. And because, you know, the, the wealth distribution is shaped like a pyramid. There are a lot, a lot more people at the bottom than those very wealthy people at the top. And um, so that's just a, a an unstable, unsustainable situation. And so that's, um, na- that's
1: nightmare one. So what's that's nightmare, nightmare two?
0: <laughs> nightmare two ends up in a similar place, but much quicker. And it's. Um, you know, I was I was telling you my hopeful, optimistic version that the 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 whole country is becoming more progressive, even though liberals and conservatives are both kind of grumpy about it. Um, th- the other nightmare scenario is that um, as progressives obtain more and more of the votes, and society becomes younger and more diverse, um, the people who you know sort of swung uh, the 2016 election. Um, for Donald Trump become angrier and angrier and, uh, more mobilized. Right. So I think that as that shrinking minority of the population gets more and more disaffected, um, there's still having a lot of wealth and power, you mean, right? Yeah. And ability to actually do things. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think we could, um, head toward social unrest in, in that way that makes the, the, um, the Nazi march in Charlottesville look like a pain precursor. Right. That's one nightmare scenario.
1: Okay. Nightmare one, nightmare two. Um, well, uh, thanks for uh, spending time with me today. I really appreciate hearing uh, your perspectives and your thoughts, and I'm going to hopefully uh, go to bed tonight thinking about your optimistic scenario and not nightmare one or nightmare two. It sounds like something out of <laughs> a Dr. Seuss book, Nightmare One or Nightmare <laughs> Two.
0: All right. Well, it's great to talk to you, today.
1: Thanks a lot, Keith. My thanks again to Keith Payne. Thanks for listening to USA TBD. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and help us spread the word to family, friends, and the multitudes on social media. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USA Thanks to my editor and engineer, Alex Brazell. We'll see you next time.